everybody. Thank you guys uh, for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Reggie, and uh, I am one of uh, the elders here at Redemption Church. Jeremy Carr is our uh, teaching pastor, and Jeremy's been on sabbatical for a few weeks, and Jeremy has about three weeks left on his um, sabbatical. So a few weeks ago, we started a new series um, to take us through January into the beginning of February called Everyday Gospel. And essentially what we're doing with this series is sort of uh, through the lens of Scripture and uh, through the lens of the Gospel, uh, examining some topics and some things that uh, affect us on an everyday basis, things that are common to us, uh, really regardless of where we are in life. Things like um, our vocation and our job and finances. And um, in the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll talk about um, a, a couple of other things uh, as well, next um, Sunday we'll talk about hospitality and eating and drinking and some things like that. But this morning, uh, specifically, what we had planned on talking about is uh, marriage and family. And so over the last couple of weeks, as I began to prepare for this sermon, um, that sort of changed a little bit. So this morning we're going to talk about marriage and singleness um, instead. And just so you know as well, uh, I prepared a sermon and had it done on Friday and then um, I couldn't sleep very well Friday night, and I rewrote it again yesterday morning. Um, so hopefully this is what God would have us uh, hear from his word this morning. Very specifically about this series, though, the goal is not just to come in here on a Sunday morning and hear from the stage uh, something from God's word. The goal is to come in here, hear something from the stage, and then take that out with you. And to begin, examine that topic that we cover uh, through the lens of the gospel, both by yourself, with your friends, and missional communities, and things like that. And so there's a direct tie between uh, what we want to talk about on Sunday mornings during this series um, and what we want you to take home and begin to have conversations about, but not just talk about it, talk about it in light of the gospel and what God's word has to say uh, about that. So there's some um, questions in your bulletin that you can take to do that and think through and, and things like that. And also what we've been trying to do with this series is just hear from a couple of other voices uh, other than who you would normally see on stage on a Sunday morning. And so uh, I'm going to talk for just a minute from God's Word, and then in a few minutes we're going to hear uh, from Chris and Rachel Lesniewski um, regarding... Um, regarding where I'm going this morning with, with, with God's word. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for the opportunity to be present with you this morning in this place with your um, family. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to hear from your word and just for a few minutes to sing together, to pray together, to take communion. Um, and God, hopefully just sort of, uh, just uh, barely crack the topics of marriage and singleness. And God, I pray that even as we talk about it very briefly this morning, um, that you would uh, push us to your word and that you would draw us to yourself over the course of the coming week uh, based on what we talk about this morning. And God, I pray, uh, I recognize that what I have to say on this, what I have to say this morning is of little importance, but God, what you have to say is of utmost importance. So God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray um, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds. Um, God, I recognize um, that, that, that I just want to be a vessel of your grace and mercy, a vessel of your love and the gospel. And so, God, I pray that that's what we would hear this morning, that Jesus would be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. And, God, we ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. 
So when we started this series a couple of weeks ago, um, I defined discipleship as leading one another to increasingly submit all of our life, that's time, work, relationships, finances, uh, sexuality, leisure, whatever, to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. We took that from uh, another training um, session that some of our missional community leaders are doing right now, but that's the definition of discipleship that we're working from. And so when we talk about our responsibilities as followers of, of Christ, we talk about the things that we should be doing as Christians, when we talk about what it means to increasingly submit all of our life to Christ and to his lordship, there are two great dangers that we face. Um, the first danger is to think that our action and our obedience actually grants us some standing, some bearing with Christ. Uh, I believe that the gospel teaches that our standing before God comes only through the work of Christ on our behalf. And so um, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tell us that we have a great high priest that goes before us that allows us access to God. And so that's, that's the essence of the gospel, right? That Christ did something on our behalf, not that we can do something to make Christ accept us. We gain our status from the work of Christ. But the second danger, on the other hand, is to think that because we have a proper standing with God, because of the work of Christ on our behalf, that there's nothing required of us. To think that because Jesus saved us and set us apart by his work alone, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, that there's nothing for us to do. When in fact, in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says to his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so there's this tension, there's this tension in between these two extremes, these two dangers. And here's how I think we resolve that tension. It's with the understanding that the call to do something only comes after call, after Jesus has called us to be something. The call to action comes after we belong to Jesus. If you remember, I spoke a few weeks ago from Matthew 4, 19, and Jesus walked up to some guys and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says to these guys, you come to me, and after you come to me, I'm going to make you into something, and I'm going to give you a purpose. And so Jesus has a purpose for the fact that these guys would follow him, but that purpose comes after they belong to him. In essence, their doing follows their being, and they're called to do only after they are called to belong right? Being comes before doing. And so this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's expected of us as followers of Jesus Christ, specifically in the context of marriage and singleness. So in as much as I may say God expects this of us, and in as much as I may say uh, we should be doing this, we should be obedient, I want us to very clearly understand that we obey because we belong. We obey as a response um, we obey because Christ did something for us, not in order to gain something for, uh, on our own behalf. So, so moving on from there, many of the New Testament epistles were simply letters written to specific churches and specific people to address very specific issues. Uh, one example of this is the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, we'll dive in in just a second. But it's a, a letter written to the church at Corinth by Paul to address some issues that the people at Corinth had written to Paul about. And um, in chapter 7, Paul references uh, that letter, what they had corresponded to him about. 
and he just dives right into some issues that need to be addressed And they were probably somewhat uncomfortable to address, but undoubtedly they needed to be dealt with. And so that's where Paul goes right away. And and 1 Corinthians 7 is a notoriously difficult passage um, to deal with, but it's a passage where Paul deals with a variety of topics. If you just take a cursory glance at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul touches on sex, Paul touches on singleness, marriage, self-control, marital obligations between a husband and a wife, marriage to an unbelieving spouse, divorce passions of the flesh, living as you were called, being bought with a price, living as a single person, and that's only the first 24 verses, right? There's so much in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to deal with that we could never deal with it all just on a Sunday morning in the time allotted to us. But what I want to do is just take a look at the tip of the iceberg for a moment. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church uh, evidently uh, because there was some sort of ascetic group that had arisen in the Corinthian church that was teaching along something along the lines that all Christians should avoid sex whether they're married or not, married or single. And, um, and so from there, Paul jumps into this long, incredibly exhaustive conversation about marriage and singleness and what that looks like and what the purposes are. And he just um, continues to deal with these subjects over and over and over throughout 1 Corinthians Seven And like I said, our time and format this morning sort of limits how in-depth we can get with this passage. But there are several verses I want to highlight and lay out just four very specific things. Um, all of these things that we're going to talk about, though, I want you to understand that when Paul writes these things, he's writing them within the context of dealing with the topics of marriage and singleness. That's the context for which Paul is writing about when he writes these things. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven verses six and seven. They'll be on the screen, um, and they will be in the. I, I'm reading from the ESV version. They'll be on the screen. You can follow along in your ver- in your Bibles or on the screen. But verse six and seven. Now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all, whereas myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, and one of another. specifically within the context of marriage and singleness. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches, the context of marriage and singleness. You were bought with a price, verse 23, do not become bondservants of men. Verse 24, so brothers in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God in the context of marriage and singleness. There are four things that I want you to see very clearly from these passages, these few brief verses. In verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, Now is a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul is clear that both the state of marriage And the state of singleness are gifts from God. One is not greater than the other. They are both gifts from God. You know, a lot of times we don't see it that way. Uh, For those of us in this room who might be single, we might be bitter about the fact that we're not in a long-term marriage relationship, that God hasn't brought to us the person that we'll be married to and connected with for a lifetime. Or maybe we're bitter that our spouse has left or Uh, Or maybe our spouse has unfortunately passed away. 
Or maybe for those of us in the room who are married, maybe we view our marriage relationship as constraining, as holding us back because we have these responsibilities to fill once you're in this marriage relationship. But God says that each of those states is a gift from him. They're they're not random. They're not, uh, they exist and we all fall into those categories. We're single or we're married. We may be single and not yet married. We may be single um, after we've been married or we may be married, but, but we all fall into those categories and each one of those categories, each one of those states of being is a gift from God. We may not see it that way because of the circumstances of our life, because of things that we want, but it doesn't change the fact that Paul is very clear the state of singleness and the state of marriage is a gift from God. In verse 17, and the second thing that I want to draw out, Paul is clear that a God has assigned to us the state that we find ourselves in, either single or married. And this speaks to the sovereignty of God. This speaks to God assigning something to us right now where we are. But the idea behind the word assigned here is being given a portion of something. And when I, when I, when I say that, I want you to think maybe um, a recipe. If you're going to make a pound cake, at least in the South... This is the way it works. Somebody back me up on this. You make a pound cake with one pound each of flour, butter, eggs, and sugar. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff. It's one pound of each. If you fail to include everything in there, you don't really have a pound cake. You have something else, right? But the portion is assigned to the recipe. The portion is assigned to make that come together. And so when God, when Paul says uh, that God has assigned to each of us this thing to live the life that we find ourselves in to lead the life that God has assigned to us God has given us that God has portioned that state of either marriage or singleness for us right now for some of us it's being single for some of us is being married and for some of us those states will change in life singles may get married and married people may become single that's just the reality of life. Things happen. Things don't always go according to our plan, but that doesn't mean that God is not sovereign and that God does not have a purpose for us right where we are. In this season of life, where we find ourselves, married or single, it's a gift from God. And because God is sovereign, God has assigned us that portion right now. And part of our submitting every area of our life to the Lordship of Christ involves recognizing that the state we find ourselves in is a gift, and it's where God has us right now. And it may change, but that's where God has us right now. Third, in verse 23, Paul reminds us directly of the gospel. Within the context of marriage and singleness, God goes back, I mean, Paul goes right back to the gospel. He says, you were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus bought our freedom from Satan, sin, and death when he died on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement that we might be free. And regardless of the state we find ourselves in, married or single, Jesus died on the cross to be our rescuer. And since Jesus paid the debt to rescue us, Jesus gets to set the agenda for our lives. Hence, Paul says, don't be a slave to men because Jesus is the one that saved you. 
Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And so that means your marriage should reflect the gospel in the way that you live with one another and forgive one another and sacrifice for one another and lay down your life for one another. Your marriage, if you are married, should reflect Christ's covenant with the church. It should be a direct reflection of the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 7 tells us the exact same thing about singleness. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 32, 33, and 34, just listen to them here. But essentially Paul says that singleness provides a unique opportunity to completely pursue what Christ has for you in light of the gospel. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And so Paul says that in your singleness, if that's where God has you, you have a unique opportunity to pursue Christ and reflect the gospel to those around you that you would not otherwise have were you in a married relationship. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary to South America. Um, he was killed by some indigenous tribes that he was... Um, advancing the gospel to, you know, preaching the gospel to, living among these tribes in South America, and he was killed. His wife, Elizabeth, uh, stayed there um, in South America and continued to be a missionary to those tribes um, where Jim Elliot was killed when he was proclaiming the gospel as a missionary. Some years later, um, Elizabeth Elliot remarried, and within about three or four years of being remarried, her husband died. So uh, she experienced um, death twice and was single multiple times in her life. Um, and um, the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's an incredible story. If you don't know it, uh, I urge you to check it out. You can look it up. There's books that have been written. Um, Elizabeth Elliot um, came to be an incredible spokesman for both um, missions work and theology as it relates to uh, different things over the course of the past 30 or 40 years. But Elizabeth Elliot says this, having now spent, or she said this in a book that she wrote for her daughter right before her daughter was going to be married. Having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift, not one I would choose, not one many women would choose, but we do not choose our gifts, remember? We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. And so part of submitting every area of our life to the lordship of in Christ involves recognizing that the agenda for our marriage and the agenda for our singleness is set by God. It doesn't get to be set by us. It doesn't get to be set by culture. It doesn't get to be set by society. It's set by God. Finally, I want you to see from verse 24, 23 and 24. Verse 23, Paul says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. The, the word remain here is interesting 
It's the same root word that Jesus uses in John 15. In John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and over 10 times in that, uh, like the first 15 or 16 verses of John chapter 15, Paul, I mean, Jesus tells his disciples 10 times, abide in me, remain in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. It's the same word that Paul uses here, the same Greek root that Paul uses here. He is constantly telling the disciples to remain in him, to abide in him. And Paul says it again in verse 23 and 24, 1 Corinthians 7, in the context of marriage and singleness. Eric Mason, who is the pastor of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, says the way for us to understand this word is the concept of marinating, like a steak that's marinating, waiting to be cooked, where that marinade begins to impact every part of our life, and um, that marinade gets into every part of the steak so that when you cook it, it's delicious. He says that's the proper way to understand what it means to remain in Christ. And so Jesus is constantly telling his disciples in John 15 to remain in him, to abide in him. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 7, the context of marriage and singleness. But Jesus in John chapter 15 goes here. Listen to this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The reason we're called to remain, the reason we're called to abide with Christ is that we might bear fruit. When Jesus saved you and set you apart as his own, he did that with the ultimate goal that you would live out the purposes he has with you, for you. He didn't save you and set you apart just so you could chill right where you're at. When Jesus saved you and set you apart, he set you apart for a purpose. He set you apart with a goal. He set you apart to obey, to follow, to make disciples, to bear fruit. So being gifted by God, being assigned a gift by God, being rescued by God, and remaining with God all carries with it an expectation that we will bear fruit and that's part of the discipleship process and so that leads me to ask you this question are you bearing fruit in the gift that God has given you the gift of singleness the gift of marriage are you bearing fruit and the gift that God has given you how are you submitting every area of your life to the lordship of Christ are you is that an ongoing thing is that something that that you need to explore now, something I want you to take with you this week and dive into that. I'm not standing up here trying to tell you to do better and to try harder. Don't, don't hear me as saying that. But I am asking, are you remaining, abiding, marinating in Christ? And if you are, what areas of your life is Jesus calling you to submit to him? Uh, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to bring uh, Chris and Rachel Lesniewski up on stage. Guys, if you want to come on up and uh, grab some stools over here. Um, let me grab these stools and we'll have a conversation for a minute. But the reason um, that I'm calling Ri or that I want Chris and Rachel to be on stage with me for a little bit is, is this. Is I think they have a unique story of, um, of God calling them to bear fruit in their lives. And I want you to hear that story uh, 
to a certain extent. Um, and I'm going to let them dive into that here in just a second. Uh, but the re- like I said, the reason I, I, I've asked Chris and Rachel uh, to be a part of this conversation is, is this, is that in their marriage, in their life together, they have a unique story of how God has called them to bear fruit, and a unique story of how God has called them to submit to his lordship. And, and I want us to hear that story. It's, um, it's a way in which God gave them the opportunity and called them to submit to his lordship, specifically within the context of his marriage, that the gospel would be reflected um, in a way that may not have been done otherwise. And so we're gonna, I'm going to ask them a few questions. I'll wrap up in a few minutes. Uh, but first, let's start with this. Um, Chris and Rachel, will you guys just dive right in and tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, so we're originally from the Baltimore, D.C. area. And we met in our senior year in high school. And we, um, we were together. And within the first year, um, Rachel's parents went through a divorce. And it was um, kind of an earth-shattering thing. Rachel's parents seemed to have this perfect marriage where everything was together. And um, it set Rachel, her brother, her sister, her mom kind of reeling. Her dad moved out. And Rachel felt this call to return to church. And um, Rachel had grown up in the Episcopal Church, um, hadn't been for many years. I had gone a few dozen times in my life to church, but we weren't necessarily church kids. And, um, but Rachel was called back, so me being the dutiful boyfriend, I was like, sure, let's go. So we uh, started this church shopping uh, expedition, and we ended up at a church named Reba Trace Baptist Church in Annapolis, Maryland. And um, it became our church home. It's where we came to know the Lord. We um, confessed the prayer of salvation. We were baptized. Uh, we went through marriage discipleship there. Um, Rachel's family eventually um, came to that church, and they were saved. And um, all of the um, her brother and sister, their spouses were from Riva. My sister and mom went to Riva. Um, it became our church home. Uh, we were together for about seven and a half years, that's a long time to be together, but eventually we went, got through college and we got married at Riva, and we had this idea of our marriage is going to be this, uh, you know, we were going to get married, have our 2.3 kids, you know, settle down in Annapolis, Maryland, and, you know, just kind of live out life, each have careers and stuff, and um, we ended up having three kids, uh, Anna, Haley, and Cameron, and they were even dedicated at, at a uh, at Annapolis, uh, at Riva Trace. And um, so that's, that's kind of where we ended up. Uh, but uh, as we look back now, at least from my perspective, um, uh, Rachel will speak for herself, but um, we, I, I, I was living under this, this way of, um, I didn't understand the Gospels, that's the short of it. I um, was going through motions and, and going to church on Sunday and, and, and always in my heart trying to um, earn earn some place of where I should be with God um, when, when, when I would sin and you, you find, constantly fall into sin um, instead of confessing instead of running towards Christ I would move away in shame and guilt and always trying to do things, service, mission trips um, devotions, anything was just a way of kind of trying to bring myself back into right standing with God 
And, um, and that's, that's kind of where I lived for, we lived for many years in that understanding. Um, but God being rich in mercy didn't leave us there. And we, um, for me, it's kind of started, I went on a, on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic with our church. And I saw something there that I hadn't seen before. Um, I saw a church that had this sense of community. I saw a pastor who was completely sold out in shepherding his flock. I saw, I saw grace. I just saw contentment in relationship and not in things and, and in Jesus. And I, saw, I was like, one, I'm wondering, how does this fit with the American church? How does it fit where we are? Well, God was also doing a work at our church at the time. So we go back and um, people are starting to pass around these books by guys like David Platt and um, Francis Chan and John Piper. And this is the first time we're reading stuff like this. And it was, I remember reading Crazy Love. Not that there's anything magical or special about Crazy Love, but I was wrecked. Because I realized I didn't know, I knew, I knew of Jesus' salvation and, the, and salvation he offered. But I didn't know him. I didn't know God as Father. I didn't know him as friend. I didn't know him as Lord. I didn't know him as, as treasure, something I was to be pursuing. And um, it completely changed as far as, um, okay, now I need to, knowing all this now, what does life look like? You know, where, where is this plan going? I mean, um, do you want to share where you were kind of at that, at that point? Yeah, at the same time, we had um, a very young girl in our church. She was college age, and she was um, she informed us about a documentary called Invisible Children, and um, it was about the child soldiers in Africa. And so, um, through things like that, that completely wrecked our hearts. Um, my mother-in-law had taken the kids to a Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and the African Children's Choir was there. And so they brought home CDs that had literature about the AIDS crisis and um, the number of orphans in Africa. And so we just were completely um, wrecked just by the number of um, kids in Africa that were um, alone and in need of parents and um, how our life was going to be lived differently now that we had read these books and what our life would look like now. And uh, an idea crept in, in both of our hearts, that um, we hadn't discussed. I mean, um, adoption was something that was always on the table for us, but it was only had been discussed in the event of infertility. Well, we had three healthy pregnancies right in a row. And, um, and so we never thought about that. But individually, God put that thought on our hearts, and then we came together and we're kind of... Ah, okay, so I guess this is a calling. This is something we're supposed to be called to, and um, and so we we started the adoption process. Uh, we prayed about it, and um, we put in our paperwork. We um, within 30 days of putting in our paperwork, we got a picture of Joshua and our son. And six months later, we went over for court, and then four months after that, we had to go back because the state department had to. Um, process citizenship, things like that, and we we brought Joshua home um, in uh, August of 2011. And um, but we weren't done there. I mean, uh, you know, we thought, okay, God's changed the plan once, 
Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't change it again. So um, there was a, a thought of possibly this wouldn't be the last time we adopted. And um, where do you think that kind of came from? Yeah, we were seeing um, while we were over there, we saw um, sibling sets um, being separated. One would go to um, one state, and the other child would go to the other state. And um, at the same time, I had been in Maryland working with an organization called She is Safe, which um, deals with um, human trafficking. So we knew girls being susceptible to that. Um, there's this mentality that um, kids over five are unadoptable. Everybody wants infants and toddlers, so no one wants kids who are over five because they have baggage. Um, and so we just felt that even though we were already there bringing home one son, that eventually God would call us back, that we were meant to bring home girls, that we were meant to keep siblings together, and that we were going to um, adopt girls that were over that age. Um, so we were going to eventually bring home um, a sibling set that would be girls. And so... So now we're looking at six kids, one income, because Rachel, that's another whole story, but Rachel was called to homeschool in the Baltimore, D.C. area, which is one of the most expensive areas in the United States. And so we again prayed and said, okay, God, you're going to need to provide this one. Um, how's this going to work out? And um, entered into the, into the thought of would we possibly look at relocation? Would we possibly look at leaving our home of 38 years um, and... So we, I work for Department of Defense, and one of the job opportunities in a location was possibly Fort Gordon, where cost of living is lower than Baltimore, D.C. So we prayed about that. We said, okay, is this where you're looking for us to go? And we prayed for a year. Where, where provide? Where would you like us to go? And, um, and God opened the door to a job here at Fort Gordon, and um, about a year and a half ago, we moved down here with y'all in uh, Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> And um, and right now we're living here and we're waiting uh, um, on the adoption of our two little girls. We got our paperwork in and now we're just waiting. So you guys brought Joshua home from Ethiopia in 2011. That was the time frame. Um, can you tell me about the preparations you had to make and sort of the process you went through to adopt the first time around? Um, and also, since you guys are planning to ag adopt again, um, two girls... That's the plan from Ethiopia again, two sisters. Um, what does that look like right now, and where do you stand in that process? So for Joshua, um, I think like I said, we um, first thing we did is we talked to the kids about it. Uh, we had at that time an eight, a seven, and a five-year-old. And we said, okay, kids, um, here's what mommy and daddy think God's uh, placed on our hearts. Y'all want a brother? And at first they were a little hesitant. Wait a second, got to share my toys in my room, and what is this all about? But after God moved quickly and softened their hearts and they were like, yeah, we want another brother. We want someone to come home. And, and so um, we talked to family as well. And we had been praying for it for a while. So that was the other thing is that family at first was, are you sure you already have three? You know, that seems like enough. Do you really want to throw yourself in with more than that? Um, but we had to, again, think that we had been talking, praying, and discussing it for a year, so to them it was new. But over time, again, their hearts softened, and they were looking forward to grandkids and nieces and nephews, and so it, it, it moved in that way as well. Um, this time it's a little bit different. You want to talk about that? 
Yeah, um, when we brought Joshua home in 2011, the Ethiopia program was um, super easy. Um, we had Joshua's referral within 30 days from our paperwork being in. And um, after we brought him home, things changed. In an effort to um, deal with the corruption that was happening over there, um, they put a lot of paperwork things in place and just... Um, changed how things went um, so there would be many more checks and balances. So all that was good and we wanted that, but um, that also lengthened the process um, by a long, long time. So um, now that process matches China and is four to five years um, to bring home uh, especially a healthy infant or child. So tell me this. Having been through the process again and being in the middle of, I guess, having to wait now, tell me why you guys want to adopt again. Um, so we have three kids. Uh, we have three older kids, and they were fortunate enough to be born into a house uh, with two parents, and, um, and Joshua was not. And um, But God seeks out the one in the 99. He... He um, he provides, and um, and it's it's not through anything that we did that um, that Joshua is here now. Um, it's it's because of of God's grace and mercy. I mean, um, it, through through Christ, God has made a faith family. Um, he has brought us together. Um, we are adopted into His family. So I guess uh, the reason that we adopt is because we were adopted. Okay. And uh, finally, can you guys speak to this for a minute? What role has Joshua's adoption and your desire to adopt again and the process that you have to go through to do that? How has that played a role in you guys learning to surrender every aspect of your life to the Lordship of Jesus? That, that's a big question. Um, like I said, when we got married, uh, it was 2.5 kids, nice car, you know, career, things like that. Um, our, I look back and our plan was mainly with us at the center. Um, but God, being rich in mercy, uh, identified um, what our purpose is, um, what, who our, what our identity is, um, and it's in Him, and that our joy comes from submission and moving into the way he made us to be. Um, our, our, the adoption is not just for Joshua, it's for you know, Rachel and me ourselves. Our, our family, us, our faith um, has grown in ways that never would have been possible without Joshua. Um, and, you know, it, like I said, it has nothing to do with us. We hear all the time, oh, you're such nice people, you're such a big heart. No, no, that's, that's not why Joshua was adopted. Um, Joshua is not adopted because we're nice people and we have a big heart. Joshua is adopted because we have a God who is father to the fatherless and sets the lonely in families. And it's because of that that um, we can call him son and hoping to hear uh, two more voices say daddy. Yeah, this um, hasn't been in our timeline. If it was um, my plan, um, the girls would have been here two years ago when we submitted our paperwork and we sit here and wait 
we've been in Georgia a year and a half. Our plan was that we would get to Georgia and our girls would come home. And it didn't happen that way. But um, God's ways are higher than our ways. And um, he has a plan. And uh, Jesh, uh, Reggie talked about um, just abiding in him. And so I don't know what his plan is, but God has called us in this moment to trust in him and be obedient to what he's called us to. And that's all we can do. So as much as we want our girls here now, um, there's purpose in this time that he has us here and waiting. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Will you guys give Chris and Rachel a hand? <clears throat> so here's, whoa, Zach, I just hit your board. I'm sorry. Um, here's what I want us to see from uh, Chris and Rachel's story. This is what I want us to hear um, is this, is not that Chris and Rachel are super Christians. It's not that Chris and Rachel went out and did something super awesome, even though they did. What I want us to see is that when we abide in Christ, when we remain in Christ, when we um, center our lives around Christ, as we as singles or as married people um, pursue what Christ has for us, as we remain right where Christ has us and abide in him, then God calls us to bear fruit. And so Chris and Rachel's story is unique in that it led them to adopt a child from Ethiopia and hopefully adopt two more girls soon uh, from Ethiopia. And their, their story is near and dear to my heart. My story's not the same way, but I'm adopted, and my story is vastly different than Joshua's. Um, but that's just um, one example of God working within the context of right where he has people in order that they might bear fruit. And their story and what they've gone through hasn't always been easy. It's been difficult, and they're still waiting for God to bring two Ethiopian girls home to Augusta um, to be a part of our, our church family as well. So I would encourage you guys to be praying for them and, and, and to be praying for that process as well. But overall, like I said, the big picture is uh, I just wanted you to have an example, a real-life, real-world example of what I'm talking about from 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, Abide in me. And the reason Paul says abide is that we would bear fruit, right? When we understand scripture, uh, all of scripture together, when Paul says that marriage and singleness is a gift, when Paul says that God has you right where he wants you, when Paul says, remember the gospel, God sets you apart as his own and God gets to set the agenda for your life. And when Paul says abide in me, it's with the understanding that we abide that we might bear fruit. And so I'm not necessarily calling you to go do something, don't hear me as saying that. I'm calling you to abide in Christ, where, where, right where Christ has you, that Christ might bring to you um, the fruit that he would have you bear, that, that Christ might bring that to fruition in your life like he did in the life of Chris um, and Rachel. It's not always easy. It's not always uh, going to work the way we want it to. And the story that God has for you may certainly be different than the story that God has for Chris and Rachel and their family. Um, but the call to abide and the call to bear fruit is the same. I want to read you this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer. 
I have to take my glasses off to read from my phone. But A.W. Tozer wrote this, What must our Lord think of us if his work and his witness depend upon the convenience of his people? The truth is that every advance that we make for God and for his cause must be made at our inconvenience. If it does not inconvenience us at all, there is no cross in it. If we have been able to reduce spirituality to a smooth pattern and it cost us nothing, no disturbance, no bother, and no element of sacrifice in it, we are not getting anywhere with God. We have stopped and pitched our unworthy tent halfway between the swamp and the peak. We are mediocre Christians. Was there ever a cross that was convenient? Was there ever a convenient way to die? I've never heard of any. And judgment is not going to be a matter of convenience either. Yet we look around for convenience, thinking we can reach the mountain peak conveniently and without trouble or danger to ourselves. Actually, mountain climbers are always in peril and they are always advancing at their inconvenience. The call on our life that Christ has for us and whatever state he has us in is to bear fruit. It won't always be easy. It won't always go according to our plan, but it doesn't change that we're called to abide and that we're called to bear fruit. We're going to close our time together with a time of response like we do every Sunday. In just a second, the band's going to come up here on stage and they're going to continue to lead us in some songs uh, to give us the opportunity to worship by singing. Uh, Also, during this time, we have an opportunity to sit right where we are to reflect upon what God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, might be communicating to our hearts and to our minds uh, this morning to pray, to grab somebody and talk about it if need be, uh, maybe to come to an understanding of the gospel for the first time, whatever it might be. If you need to do that, by all means, sit and pray or grab somebody or grab me and we'll talk. Um, Also, during this time, we have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back where if you're a part of um, the community of faith here at Redemption, there's an opportunity for you to worship Uh, through giving. And finally, during our time together this morning, we're going to take communion. Um, And the reason we take communion is this. It's to, uh, to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. 1 Corinthians, same book that we were reading from a minute ago, Paul says that every time we do this, we're remembering Christ's work on our behalf and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe that Christ really did something for us. Um, And so I would say that if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and Christ gives you the freedom to do so, then uh, please come and take communion. But know that in doing so, what you're doing is you're saying, um, I I remember what Christ has done for me and I'm proclaiming that I believe it, that it's true. If uh, God does not give you the freedom to do that, if there is sin in your life, guilt that needs to be dealt with, an issue with a brother or sister in Christ and deal with that rather than come and take um, communion during this time. But I'm going to pray for us um, and then we'll move on from there. God, thank you for the opportunity uh, this morning just for uh, to be briefly reminded from your word that in whatever state you have us in, we're called to abide in you and we're called to bear fruit. Um, God, not so that we would achieve some standing with you but because you set us apart as your own, but because, um, because you've done the work on our behalf. And so God, even now as we close our time together, as we 
take communion, as we sing, as we sit where we are and pray, as we give, whatever it is you lead us to do. Um, God, I pray that Jesus would still be lifted high, that you would still draw us to Jesus. And inasmuch as you draw us to Jesus and allow us to abide in him, God, I pray that you would use us to bear fruit. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son. Amen.